You're listening to a sermon from crckulaman.org. Well, I hope you're enjoying our series on Exodus. I am, so I'll keep going until I stop enjoying it. <laughs> no, we, we, we won't go through all of it, as I've said, because it's kind of a long one. We will come back eventually, though. Like, we'll stop, we'll have a rest. And if you've missed any of the weeks, jump online, crckulaman.org, hit the sermons tab, and you can catch up on the weeks that have been missed. And, and that'll get you up to speed. But we're up to this week, we're up to Exodus chapter 5. Here we see our deliverer who, who has been um, uh, needed and, and um, prepared and born and called. Here we see our deliverer finally getting to work. And he fails. Again, Moses is someone who's a bit acquainted with failure. Uh, So as we have a look at Exodus chapter 5, we sort of see a a tension arise as as Moses and the Israelites work out what it means to be part of God's deliverance plan. And and maybe you can relate to this little process they go through. It goes a bit like this. Uh, God promises you deliverance or freedom or um, something, abundance or blessing or whatever it might be, and, and you receive that promise from God. You say yes and amen, and you celebrate that promise. So if we had a quick look here at Exodus uh, chapter 4.29, we're just starting just before uh, chapter 5. So 4.29, Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. So they've heard God's deliverance plan and they've said, yes, God's finally going to set us free. And and they worship and they celebrate and they get excited. And they go ahead and do what God tells them to do. So if we have a look there in chapter 5, verse 1 to 3, Moses Moses gets to work on on what God has, has told him to do. So afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. So you go ahead and, and, and do what God has told you to do. And what happens? Rejection. You get rejection. And all you seem to experience is hard labour, oppression, um, struggles, uh, obligations, opposition just seems to be coming your way from every angle. And, and things seem to actually be getting tougher and harder. And that's certainly the case for our Israelites. If we keep reading down to verse 4. The king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labour? Get back to work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to his slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go ahead and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to the lives. 
Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out to the people and said, This is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required of you each day, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, Why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? And so you, you, you get met with some rejection. So what do you do? What do you do? You work harder. You work harder. And then you start to get a bit angry, don't you? You get angry at your enemy. So verse 15 to 18. Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh. Why have you been treating your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That's why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw. You must produce the full quota of bricks. So you get angry at your enemy, but that doesn't seem to change things. What do you do next? You get angry at your leaders, don't you? They must be the ones to blame. So verse, verse 20, here we see the Israelites, they... Um, um, they realised they were in trouble when they were told you were not to reduce the number of bricks required of you each day. And when they left Pharaoh, they went to Moses and Aaron, waiting to, meet, waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So they go to their leaders and they get angry at their leaders what do the leaders do? Well, they get angry too. Who do they get angry at? God. They get angry at God. Verse 22. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, have you brought this trouble on your people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has brought trouble on your people, and you have not rescued your people at all. So we're in a bit of a tricky situation here, aren't we? And I think the questions for us as we reflect on Exodus chapter 5 is this. Do we really listen to God? Do we really obey God? And do we really trust God? And finally, what do we do with failure? What do we do with failure? It's easy to think we're doing these things. Isn't it? But I think as the example we see here with Moses and the Hebrews, perhaps we're not always doing them as well as we think we are. Think about the parable of the sower here for a moment. Uh, the seed that falls on the rocky ground. And what does it represent? The seed falling on rocky ground represents the people who hear God's word with joy so initially they get joyful and they get excited and there's celebration and there's worship it's a bit like the Israelites here in in verse uh, 31 of chapter 4 so they, they, they hear what uh, God has promised and they get excited and they start to worship and they receive the word with great joy this promise they receive it with great joy God has heard our prayer God has said he will deliver us God has promised something amazing 
I wonder if you've ever experienced that. When God gives his word to you and you receive that word, maybe it's a prophetic word. Maybe you know, through Bible readings or, or there's a, a sense of something God's going to do uh, as an answer to prayer. Maybe it's a sermon that speaks to you or a friend who comes and, and shares something with you that encourages you. And you, you hear this word of God with great joy and you get really excited. And you're like, thank you, Lord. You know, you're about to bring breakthrough in my life. That thing I've been praying for for years and years, breakthrough is coming. I can sense it. I, I receive your word with joy. I wonder who here is, is at the moment praying for a specific breakthrough or provision. Don't, don't say what it is, but who's, who's got something very, that they're very intentionally praying for breakthrough or, or provision in? Do a few people, is that? Yeah, yeah, okay. Who here has a sense that, that God's going to bring something to pass in relation to that quite soon? Yep, a few people. Yep. And how are you feeling about that? Good, excited. You kind of want to worship. You're like, yeah, God, there's breakthrough coming. Okay. What happens in the parable of the sower to the seed that's on the rocky soil? Initially, there's joy, but what happens? It withers away because there's no root and it lasts only a short, to- short time. When trouble or when persecution comes, they fall away. And, and we, we can see this with the Israelites. After initially receiving God's word with great joy and great enthusiasm, they fall away. They start to doubt and they get angry when trouble and persecution comes. Uh, they and Moses have what's called a crisis of faith. Have you ever had a crisis of faith? Perhaps you're in a crisis of faith right now. There's the story of uh, the young man who went to his bishop to confess that he'd lost his faith. And the, the bishop quite cleverly replied, Nonsense. You've lost your parents' faith. Now go out and get your own. I think usually a crisis of faith comes when, when we think we're doing everything we should as, as a good, mature, faithful Christian. But the results just aren't coming. In fact, not only are you not getting breakthrough, you're actually getting persecution. So, so you're actually getting more problems. Things are actually getting worse, not better. And, and maybe things that had been kind of going okay all of a sudden are just now looking like complete and utter disaster. I think, however, faith crises can be quite useful. They don't feel useful, do they? But they can be quite useful. Because you can, you can think that you, you obey God. You can think that, that you listen to God. You can think that you trust to God. But I tell you what, it's not until trouble and persecution comes that you really find out whether you do or not. It's easy to be full of faith when your faith is not tested. It's like it's easy to be a nice person when you're around nice people, isn't it? It's easy. It's easy to be really exuberant and excited about the gospel and on fire for Jesus when you're around other Christians. But, you know, it's, it's a bit harder to have faith when your faith is tested, isn't it? Being nice is difficult around difficult people. Your exuberance for the gospel often gets a bit... Um, are tempered somewhat around cynics and, and those who are anti-faith. In chapter 5 here we see, we see two things at play that are causing this faith crisis. 
two things, and I wonder whether any of us can relate to these two things. The first is selective hearing. Selective hearing. The second is selective obedience. Selective obedience. So let's have a look at selective hearing. Do you, don't answer this question out loud, just proviso. Do you know anyone with selective hearing? <laughs> don't answer out loud. Um, as a mum, I, pra- I practice selective hearing from time to time. Hey, come on, we all do it. Hey, like, you know, do I really want to deal with, like, whatever X, Y, Z is going on there right now? No, so I'll pretend I didn't hear that. Come on, don't tell me other parents you don't do this, hey? Yeah. Uh, Here's the thing, I mean, kids practice selective listening and hearing, don't they? So if kids can do it, it's okay for us to do it, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Selective hearing. These, these, uh, Moses was a little bit selective in his listening. Have a look back at chapter 3, verse 19. Chapter 3, 19. So this is when God's giving Moses the initial instructions. This is the, the burning bush thing. Uh, and God says, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go, unless a mighty hand compels him. What did God warn them about? Yeah, I know that the king of Egypt will say yes straight away. He's not going to let you go. I'm going to have to compel him. So he's going to say no, he's going to resist. So God had warned them about this. Now, um, if you flick over to... Chapter 4, verse 30. And Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. So this is where Moses and Aaron come together and they've got the the elders of the Israelites and Aaron's relaying everything that God had told Moses about this whole procedure. Everything. So they should have known that Pharaoh was going to say no. Shouldn't have they? So... I mean, what do they expect? I mean, really? Like, like why are they getting angry at, at, at Moses and getting angry at God? Like, why is, God, why is Moses getting angry at God? Like God said, he's going to say no. You know, did they think that Pharaoh was going to suddenly let his nation's slave labor force leave in order to go and worship a God that wasn't Pharaoh? Because obviously Pharaoh, as, as, as Pharaoh, was considered to be a God to be worshipped. I, I mean... It's, it's ridiculous, isn't it? A slave people fronting up to this king god, Pharaoh, asking to leave so that they can hold a festival to their god in the wilderness. It's crazy. What did they expect? Was he going to say yes? I mean, God had already told them that he would say no. So they were pretty keen to hear the last part of what God had said, you know, the deliverance part, but not the rest that Pharaoh will resist, that he'll say no. So the Hebrew people had selective hearing. I think there's, there's a risk that we sometimes have selective hearing when it comes to God's word and his promises to us. We can be pretty quick to hear the happy part, can't we? The deliverance part, the, 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 the breakthrough part, but maybe not so eager to hear the difficult part. You know, the the bit that kind of warns us it will not be simple or quick or painless in the meantime. 
we kind of ignore that bit. I think it's probably helpful for us just to pause Exodus here and to jump over to the New Testament just for a moment. I just want to show you something across here in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to 7. And I'm going to read verses 3 to 7 and I want you to listen for these three things. For the promises, for the persecution and for what is proven. Promises, persecution and what is proven. Have a listen. 1 Peter 1, 3-7 Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice. Woohoo, deliverance! Though now for a little while, hang on, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Hmm. These have come so that the proven genuous of your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Did you hear the promises there? Well, they were good promises, weren't they? Hey, I liked those. But did you hear the persecution? Trials, suffering. But, but what is proven at the end of that process? Your faith, the generous of your faith. I wonder, are you currently experiencing a trial or a difficulty? Perhaps you're struggling in your faith because of it. You know, persecution does not negate the promise. Suffering does not mean that God has abandoned you. Failure does not hinder God's faithfulness to you. We we, we must open our our ears and hear all of God's word to us, the the easy and the hard bits, the the nice parts and the uncomfortable parts, the thrilling bits and the downright boring parts. We, We can't pick and choose. I'd encourage you this week in your quiet time, you might like to sit down and make a list of all the encouraging, exciting, thrilling, uplifting promises or commands that you find in a particular scripture or in the Bible. And then I'd invite you to make a list of all the harder, more difficult promises or commands, the ones that you might necessarily pay attention to normally. And I just invite you to, in prayer, hold those two lists of promises and commands before God and, and just, just allow him to minister to you in both the, the, the difficult and the easy aspects of his word. So if you were to, to do that with 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, the bit that we just read, the, the nice promises there, all the bits about being given a living hope and, and having an inheritance in heaven and being shielded by God's power... They're the woohoo victory bits, aren't they? But the difficult part of his promises is that, you know, I may have to suffer grief and trials for a while before I experience that breakthrough. It's easy to skip over the hard parts. 
And I think we probably regularly need the Holy Spirit to, to take a, a giant, big spiritual cotton bud and kind of clean out our spiritual earwax a little bit uh, so that we can uh, hear and listen to God clearly. So that's selective hearing. Then the second part, selective obedience or partial obedience. This is when you've, you've, uh, you, you do what you're asked, sort of. You do what you're supposed to, kind of. You kind of just change it a bit to suit yourself. So close enough's good enough, but that's right, not always. And, and so you, you, you do it so that you can still justify to yourself that you're being obedient. But, you know, you follow the rules, but you bend them a bit. So you do like 80% of what's asked for and decide that the other 20% is kind of irrelevant or really not, not worth the effort. It's kind of like I, I clean 80% of my kitchen. And I'm like, the last 20%, I'm like, no, whatever. It's, it's irrelevant. It's not worth it. I'm going to leave that. Um, I wonder, is anyone here guilty of, um, of following the road rules selectively? You know, partial obedience to the road rules. I know that there's, yeah. Oh. Okay, so you obey 100% of 95% of them. Yep, that's probably true for most of us here. Hmm. Um, at the moment, uh, we're practicing selective obedience to our, our mechanic. Our car should have been serviced probably about 5,000 k's ago. Uh, and it is booked in for a service. So I've done what I should do, sort of. Uh, I'm bending the rules a bit there. You might, uh, you might be uh, partially obedient to your boss at work, maybe, or to your supervisor. And so you do enough to, to look like you've listened to them, but you haven't really done what's been asked of you. There's a book by Phil Pringle called The Parable of the Dog, and he talks about complete obedience to the call and task that God has assigned you. So he says, you know, Mary couldn't just be a little bit pregnant, could she? Noah couldn't just build half an ark. Jesus couldn't sacrifice the sins of the world with just a whipping in the courtyard or an hour on the cross. There is no partial obedience option in God's kingdom. It's, it's all or it's nothing. We see Moses here practicing a bit of selective obedience. So verse, chapter 5, verse 1. Who goes to Pharaoh to make the appeal? Have a look. Chapter 5, verse 1. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, etc., etc. So who goes to make the appeal? Moses and Aaron. Okay. Let's flip back to chapter 3, verse 18, where God's giving the instructions. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. Who was supposed to go? The elders and Moses and Aaron. That's interesting, isn't it? What are they supposed to request? 3.18, they're supposed to request, they're supposed to say, uh, the, the Lord, the God of Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. 
What, what do they actually, initially at least, request? Verse 1. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. They're supposed to request three days off work to head into the wilderness to offer sacrifices. But what do they, they actually request? Just let us go. We just want to go. There's no time limit that they put on it. Unconditional, unlimited freedom to just go and hold a festival to their God. Pharaoh doesn't hesitate in telling them that it's an absolutely ridiculous request. Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. So they try plan B, which is actually God's plan A, which is what they should have done in the first place. And um, they, they say, well, hey, how about, how about three days? If you won't just let us go completely, <laughs> would you give us three days? Which is what God wanted them to ask for in the first place. Um, but they're, they're still practicing a bit of selective obedience. And they, they decide that they actually need to beef up God's word a bit. Because obviously, you know, God's word maybe wasn't going to be powerful enough in that situation. They thought, I don't know. Um, so they wanted to make God's plan sound a little bit more serious. And, and what do they add there? They request the three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God or, it's there in verse 3, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. Now, God said he'd strike the Egyptians with some rather spectacular signs and wonders, but he never threatened his own people. And so it's intriguing that Moses would add this, isn't it? Maybe he's trying to speed up God's plan a bit, add a bit of extra drama so that Pharaoh might act sooner. I, I don't know. By now, Pharaoh's getting pretty cranky. He's starting to feel a bit nasty. He's kind of, he's kind of like someone who is giving up both cigarettes and coffee at once together. You know, just, just nasty, cranky. And um, so he decides to ramp up the requirements for the slaves so that they have no time to think about wanting their freedom. And, of course, he requires them to go out and gather their own straw. And you, 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 we've read that bit earlier. Now, I wonder, would the outcome have been different for the Hebrews if Moses had followed God's instructions to the letter? I mean, because God had already said that Pharaoh would say no and that God would have to intervene in some mighty ways to gain the people's freedom. So you could go, well, you know, I mean, the outcome was still the same, wasn't it? No harm done, Moses. You mostly did what God asked and God's sovereign and his plan will still come to pass. And it's true, isn't it, it to an extent? Uh, it takes more than a disobedient sinner to mess up God's plans, doesn't it? And I think we can find great relief and peace in knowing that. You know, even, even though you might go a bit off track, you mightn't do exactly what God's asked you to do, um, you know, his grace and mercy are always there for you. And I think we can pause for a moment and go, oh, thank goodness, your grace and your mercy are always there. I might disobey, I might stuff up, your plans will still come to pass, your grace and your mercy is still there for me. However... However, there are consequences for disobedience, and we all know that. I mean, you know, when we're parenting our, our children, we know that there are natural consequences for their disobedience. So if we were to see our child swinging on a chair, we're going to say, hey, you need to sit correctly on your chair with all four legs on the floor and, and stop swinging on that chair, otherwise 
the consequences will be you're going to fall off your chair. Now, as a parent, we don't come over and throw them off the chair because they're disobeying us when they keep swinging, do we? But when they fall off, well, we've warned them, haven't we? There's natural consequences. You swing on your chair, you fall off. And I think, I think God's like that with us. It, it, you know, he, he says, there's some natural consequences for not obeying my word and, and not obeying what I say to you. I'm not going to come and throw you off your chair just to, to, to punish you for not having listened to me. But there's going to be consequences. I, I tell you things because they're the right and the good and the better way of doing things. And if you're determined to do it another way, well, okay, we'll still get the outcome eventually, but you're going to get hurt in the meantime, aren't you? And so I'm guessing, and I'm only guessing here, but I'm thinking that those extra hardships and suffering that the Hebrews experienced when they had the demand to make bricks with no straw, the level of suffering increased for them, I'm wondering whether that might not have happened if Moses had followed God's instructions precisely. So the strategy in the script that God gave Moses, it was carefully tailored to maximise God's purposes without needing to increase the suffering of his people. But all Moses ended up doing was to offend and stir up the anger of Pharaoh. So God's plan was not to afflict his people with further suffering, but to highlight Pharaoh's stubborn heart and make the Egyptians favourably disposed towards the Hebrews so that they wouldn't leave empty-handed. I don't know, have you noticed that disobeying God often results in suffering? Have you observed that? God doesn't tell us to do things because he's a power-hungry control freak. He tells us to do things because they are good and they will be in our best interest and they will be in the world's best interest. I think the second thing that could have been avoided for Moses were the leadership problems that he ended up with and his faith crisis that he ended up with. So chapter 5, 19 to 21. The Israelite overseers realised they were in trouble when they were told you were not to reduce the number of bricks required for you each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. The people, they are angry at Moses. And they recognise that it was his foolish diplomacy with Pharaoh that has resulted in them being obnoxious. And that word literally means, you've made us stink to Pharaoh. You've made us stink to Pharaoh. And they're blaming Moses. He's failed them. And he has, hasn't he? I tell you what, nothing's worse than being a leader with, with your followers angry at you because of your own foolish actions as a leader. And it could have been avoided if he'd followed God's instructions. And so once again, just like back in chapter 2, we've sort of got history repeating itself here a bit here for Moses because Moses once again has his own people up against him and Pharaoh up against him. Moses is once again taking things into his own hands. He's not following God's plan or timing and the result is strife. I think the take-home for us is this, don't try and improve God's strategy. Don't speed up his plan. 
Don't try it a different way. It will cause greater stress and trial for you in the long run. So all of this situation, this leads to Moses' big faith crisis in chapter 5, verse 22. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this, this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has brought trouble on, on, his, on this people. You have not rescued your people at all. You can almost imagine him sort of like shaking his fist at God, can't you? You know, why have you done this? You promised rescue, but you failed us, God. Everything is worse now because of you, God. Moses is saying, I can't trust you, God. You don't keep your promises. You're not good. You used me. You tricked me, God. It's quite a tantrum he's having, isn't it? I think it's quite a common tantrum, don't you think? For Christians who think that God has failed them, we, we, we don't get the imagined outcome that we want. And we never place the onus of blame on ourselves, do we? Oh, why, why is that? It's always God's fault. And we get bitter and cranky and our faith grows weak. And you see people dropping out of, out of church fellowship. People stop praying. People stop reading their Bibles. And, and what, what, I've seen, what I've seen is that this crisis of faith, if left unchecked, results in depression and anxiety and, and chaotic thinking and fear and insecurity. When you're, when you're trusting God, come what may, good or bad, when you know God's promises are to you are for your welfare and your security and, and, and your provision, and when you know that they are fail-safe promises, then you live in peace, don't you? When all of that is secure, you live in peace. But when you think that that foundation, that rock of Jesus in your life, that everything you've based your life on is crumbling and no longer as secure as you think, then your, your mind is the first place that you are going to notice symptoms and fear and worry and anxiety and chaotic thoughts and depression. And, and I'm telling you, you can end up with clinically diagnosable mental health conditions because of a crisis of faith. A crisis of faith is a significant and a serious thing. It's no good blaming God for your crisis of faith because we bring these on ourselves. Like Moses, we, we practice selective hearing, a selective obedience, and, and we're usually, always, the ones at fault, not God. And I think it actually is about lordship. Is God truly our lord, our leader, our king, our master, our teacher? Do we really respect that he has the best plan and the best strategy with the best timing? And do we trust him in that? Like Moses, our journey to trust God is something we all grow and develop in. And throughout Exodus, we see Moses still needing to learn how to trust God's plans and be completely obedient to him. I think it's foolish and dangerous for us to think that we don't continue to grow in obedience throughout our Christian lifetime. I think the, the one good thing we can learn from Moses and the place that we can follow his example is in what he does with his crisis of faith. What does Moses do with his faith crisis? What does Moses do? He turns to God. He brings it to God, doesn't he? 
And how does God respond? Does, does, does God give Moses a clip around the ears and, and send him out to try even harder? Do better? Go and follow my instructions to the letter. Now God is so magnificently patient and full of mercy. And what God does is God gives him a renewed revelation of who he is as God. And you know, whatever crisis you're experiencing, whether it's a crisis of faith or whether it's another crisis, the solution to that crisis is a renewed revelation of who God is. Chapter 6, verse 2 to 3. God said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you up from under the yoke of the Egyptians and I will bring you to the land I swore with an uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a, as a possession. I am the Lord. And God says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. Remember, I am your people's God. I act on your behalf. I appeared as, as Lord Almighty, El Shaddai. Lord Almighty, El Shaddai. Do you know what El Shaddai means? I am the, the sufficient one, the all-sufficient one. God says, I am sufficient for any of your failings, your shortcomings, your inadequacies, the unknown future, your needs, your weaknesses. I am El, El Shaddai. I am the all-sufficient one. He's your El Shaddai. He's your all-sufficient one. Whatever your past, whatever your present, whatever your future, whatever your shortcomings, whatever your failings, whatever your weaknesses, he is sufficient for all of them. God says, I've made a covenant with your people you know, if you know anything about Old Testament covenants and the idea of covenants in the time of Moses, you'll know how significant this is. This, this promise of relationship and provision means, you know what, I hear your suffering and I will act on your behalf. Not to act would mean I'm disregarding my covenant promises. God will keep his word to us. And what's the covenant that he's made with you? Uh, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, Jesus. Jesus is the new promise of freedom from slavery and oppression, freedom from sin. Jesus is the new guarantee of right relationship with God. Jesus is the way for us to be intimate with God and called to be his people. Jesus is the bringer of our new life, the promised land, and he brings us entry into that place that God has prepared for us, that, that place where we can live an abundant and full life that God desires for each one of you. You know, God says, I will free you. 
I will free you. I, I will redeem you. I will take you as my people. I will embrace you as my people. I will be your God and I will bring you to the land that I have promised. And God promises to free you from oppression and sin and all of the old. God promises to bring you close to him. That's a promise of intimacy and relationship. And God promises a home for us. You know, for the Hebrews, it was land. But for us as God's people, this speaks to that eternal home he has promised us. You know, the place that I imagine to be a lot like the Garden of Eden before sin, that, that place where we can be in God's presence fully without any hindrance, that place of beauty and purpose, that place where we can be men and women made in his image that we were created to be. What a beautiful, beautiful inheritance he has for us. God's solution for whatever you face or whatever you need is himself. A revelation of his sufficiency, his power, and his faithfulness. And it's this sort of revelation that allows us to trust God. You know, we're either trusting in our own version of reality or God's version of reality. We're either trusting in our own work or God's. And where you place your trust, that's where you truly worship. And if you're going to live as one of God's people, then it's God's reality and God's truth that you need to trust in over and above your own or what other people tell you or what you experience. We need to know that God does things that are impossible. Do you know that? God does things that are impossible, that can't naturally happen, that physically can't happen. But, but he takes one reality and he inserts his own reality. I wonder if you've heard this quote, I reject your reality and substitute my own. Anyone familiar with that quote? One person is. Mythbusters, for those that weren't sure. Mythbusters. I reject your reality and substitute my own. You know, the, the, that, that quote basically means the facts of a situation may be a certain way, but that's irrelevant. I don't care what the facts say. This is what I believe. And so we need to re reject our own reality and substitute it with God's reality. The facts may say no. The facts may say you're unwell. The facts may say you don't have the finances. The facts may say you'll, you'll never um, build that house, get that job, marry that, that person. The facts may say that, but God's reality, God's reality says a different thing. ABC News on Friday, I was reading my little news feed. You know, in South Korea, the daughter of Lee Dong-kil turned two years old just two hours after being born. How? I mean, that's not, that's not possible, is it? I mean, that, that's not how the world works. Like, the facts say this baby is a newborn. But the truth is, this baby is two years old. I mean... How do you reconcile that? If you want to know how, come and talk to me afterwards. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> there is an impossibility in your life. There's an impossibility in your life now, 
right now. There's an impossibility in your life that God is bringing his version of reality to. His version of reality is one of freedom and deliverance and provision. Do you believe that? Your freedom is not found in working harder or complaining louder. You don't have to go out and find your own straw. You don't have to make more bricks because the voice of the enemy is telling you, you must work harder. Your freedom is found in knowing El Shaddai, your all-sufficient one, the one who will redeem you with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Hear God. Obey God. Trust God, take your failures to God, and you will know his deliverance. Let's pray. Father God, we worship you. You are amazing. You are El Shaddai. You are our all-sufficient one. And, and, and look, we just, we just humble ourselves. We, we bow ourselves low before you and we confess, you know what, we, we mess it up all the time. You know, we're selective in, in what we hear from you. We're selective in what we, we do with your word. We don't always get it right, Lord. And, and we just humbly confess right now our shortcomings, our weaknesses, our failures. And, and, and we're going to stop blaming you for all the things that have gone wrong in our life. We're going, to, we're going to stop blaming others. And we're just going to come to you, Lord. And Father God, would you just give us a new revelation of who you are. Reveal your mightiness to us. Remind us that you are the one who redeems us with your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. Reach out to us now, Lord God Almighty. We are your people. We thank you for that covenant you have made with us, that covenant in the blood of Jesus that brings us intimacy and relationship. And we thank you that because of that covenant, you are never going to let us down, that you are faithful to us, your people. And we know that there might be difficult things and hard times and sufferings and trials, but we're going to trust you through those difficult places because we know that you have prepared an inheritance for us. We know that victory is found in Jesus Christ. And so we just take all our suffering and we lay it at the cross. We take our difficulties and we lay them at the cross. And we just trust you, God. We just trust you, Father. Thank you, El Shaddai. May this coming week, may we just know your sufficiency for all that we do, all that we say, all that we face. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.